This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of January 15th, 2024, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. For people outside of Indianapolis, the focus of NBA All-Star Weekend next month will be an offense-only exhibition game between the league's biggest stars. But the expansive festivities surrounding the game in Indianapolis will essentially be a celebration of black excellence. The league has come to embrace the way its players have pushed the sport into the realms of black culture, including music and fashion, cuisine, acting, and art. A cavalcade of black celebrities will be on hand as Indianapolis becomes a cultural magnet. Now, one of the many events timed to coincide with All-Star festivities is the debut run of a play about the 1955 Crispus Attucks High School basketball team, led, of course, by Oscar Robertson, that became the nation's first all-black squad to win an open state tournament. Titled A Touch of Glory, the play will be performed at the high school just north of downtown's core. And for the podcast this week, IBJ Arts and Entertainment writer Dave Lindquist hosts a conversation with playwright Laura Town and director Deborah Sante. They discuss the production and the achievements of Robertson and his teammates, who excelled despite having no home court and some being displaced from their actual homes. Here's their conversation. I'm Indianapolis Business General reporter Dave Lindquist, and I'm happy to welcome to the IBJ podcast two guests to talk about a new play based on the historic Crispus Attucks High School basketball championship of 1955 that's set to premiere in time for NBA All-Star festivities coming to Indianapolis in February. We're joined by Deborah Sante, the artist and arts activist, and Laura Town, the playwright of A Touch of Glory. Hello, Deborah and Laura. Hello. Hello. Deborah, you're the director and presenter of A Touch of Glory. What can you tell us about the origin of this production? <laughs> well, about five or six years ago, uh, I was uh, made aware of the project. And, and I, I think I was sought out because I am somebody who really uh, uses history uh, in my artistry. And uh, I was uh, I was very impressed with uh, Laura's research and and creativity and how she was putting it out there. Initially, I was uh, hesitant because I I thought I knew the history already, and and um, it was important to me that the culture be authentic, and that worried me. And but I sat through a a reading, and I was very taken with the care and detail that Laura used in in putting this play together. And when we talked, I felt confident that uh, we would have a partnership as writer and director that would honor the culture. Well, Laura, it sounds like your timeline goes back a little farther. It does. So in 2015... The surviving members of the 1955 team were honored by Indianapolis as the Grand Marshals of the Indy 500 Parade. Now, this was the 60th anniversary of their tourney win in 1955, which was groundbreaking. It was the first black team to win a championship in the nation. 
I saw the Grand Marshals go by. I saw Oscar Robertson and John Gibson and Bill Hampton and uh, everyone else who is still alive. And I thought, I really don't know much about this story. I live in this city. I know Oscar is a Hall of Famer, but I didn't know all of his statistics or anything much else about him. And I felt like I should really know what is going on and why these people were honored. And once I started doing research, I just became engrossed in it. Uh, and I started calling the players and asking if I could ask them some questions. And they were very open to telling their story. I read all the books I could. Um, there's a wonderful documentary called Something to Cheer About that I watched. Uh, and I went back through the Indianapolis newspapers and read day by day the story as it progressed in real time. And I also compared that to the Indianapolis Recorder newspapers. And sometimes their stories were a little different, which was also an interesting exercise to do. Um, but that's how I started on it. So that was 2015. Uh, so I've been working on it for a long time. Deborah came to a reading, I believe that was 2017, 2018, so. somewhere around there. We presented it to the Pacers uh, in 2018, and they were on board you know, to help develop it further. And we talked about the All-Star Game. Uh, and then through you know, a good turn of events, uh, David Williams, the African-American historian, has really been a huge supporter of this project. And he requested that the Lilly Foundation support us. And they called me and we uh, were able to get their support as well as the support of Gang Gang and CICF. So we're very blessed and fortunate to be here. It's been a long journey, but it's been worth it. Fantastic. Now, David wrote the book on Indiana Avenue. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, several books. Yes. He's written several books. His latest is The History of African Americans in Indianapolis, and it's published by IU Press. All right. And Laura, your background includes a novel based on Victoria Woodhull, a leader of the women's suffrage movement who ran for president in the 1900s or 19th century, rather. 1872. Yes. Yeah. First woman to run for president. She ran for president before women could vote. And she and Susan B. Anthony had a rivalry and they uh, disagreed on some fundamental questions, one of them being race and the inclusion of race in the platform. Okay. So similar to what uh, Deborah was mentioning, uh, History uh, is a thread in your work. Yes, it has been. All right. A Touch of Glory will be staged February 9th through the 11th and also the 16th through the 18th at Attucks High School. On the surface, it's logical to present this play at the physical location where the events happened, but Attucks High School is not a run-of-the-mill location. Could you tell us about the school's history in terms of being a place that was set up to fail but instead excelled in so many ways. <laughs> it did, it did. Well, it is so significant to the black community's history here in Indianapolis. And as you say, it was set up, it was, uh, you know, driven, the creation of it was driven by the Klan, uh, but it ended up being such a blessing to the community in the sense of it really centered a lot of talent, a, a lot of uh, care about children and youth coming up. There were uh, some incredible teachers at Christmas Addicts. Uh, and I love that the play, it really does, uh, it informs while we're telling this story, you, it, it's a, a Christmas Addicts story. Being able to to be there on the stage, because at the time that this story takes place, Christmas Addicts didn't have a, a full gym. They, it wasn't even uh, a consideration that they would be part of the athletics 
program throughout the city. So they practiced on the stage yeah. where we are, are mounting this production. Yeah, that's so wild. that's, you know, that's incredible just for us to be able to do that. Uh, we looked at the, the auditorium because it's a school auditorium. And part of us is like, well, we want the production values to be slick, you know, but the history and bringing people there to not only hear about the story, but feel the story where it was happening, yeah. I think uh, is the best thing that we can do. And that first weekend is free. You you I get your that. tickets o over e Eventbrite, right. but we wanted the community. The our, our driving mission is to get this story out to to make sure people understand the significance of the story. So when Crispus Addicts played home games, where, where did they play them? Well, they didn't have any home games. Every game was Every at a game third had to be away or away. Until huh? um, President Ross of Butler University opened up Hinkle Fieldhouse. It wasn't called Hinkle then. Right. But uh, Indiana actually had 15 of the 16 largest basketball arenas, and no blacks were allowed in them until the 1950s. It was very difficult for them to find a place to play. Uh, but Hinkle Fieldhouse was open uh, starting in about 1954 to Christmas Attics. And what we don't discuss in the play is that there was backlash to that. Wow. Because the tourney was played at the Fieldhouse and the coaches of the other teams felt this gave Christmas Attics an unfair advantage because they were being able to practice on the final final stage, so to speak, for the tourney. So in 56, the field house was even taken away as an option. Oh, my goodness. So they had to play all their games away. They had to play when other schools scheduled them. Sure. So sometimes they had to play back-to-back -back games. So they'd play two or three games in a day on a Saturday, which would be exhausting. But that shows you what kind of athletes they are. Ray Crow had them running track and running track and field. Some of them even played football too to try to get in top condition because the schedule was so difficult and even with that under Ray Crow they only lost 20 games I recently watched a kinescope uh, recording that's on YouTube of the championship game against uh, Gary Roosevelt and uh, yeah it was a team that could shoot the lights out excellent rebounding an interesting thing about that game is that Christmas Attic scored 97 points. That is still the record today for most points scored in the tourney. No three-pointers. No three-pointer. No. Yeah. They also didn't know if the scoreboard would go to 100. <laughs> so they're a little concerned that it would reset to zero. That's funny. Um, well, back to the, the Attic's faculty. Uh, through my years of reporting on the arts in Indianapolis, I've learned about Attic's music teacher, Russell Brown. And his students, including J.J. Johnson, Slide Hampton, David Baker, Leroy Vinegar, and James Spaulding, who became icons of jazz. You mentioned Coach Ray Crow. What did, what did he bring uh, to, to the program? Well, Ray Crow is kind of different from his students in that he was uh, in Franklin, Indiana. His, t his family were the only African-Americans in their town. So he went to an all-white school. Okay. And then he got recruited to Indiana Central College, which is now University of Indianapolis. Yep. And he actually roomed with a white boy. So he was really shocked at the level of segregation within the Indianapolis city. And he had never dealt with as many African-Americans on a daily basis as he needed to when he was at Christmas Attics. But what... He, 
people liked about him, what Russell Lane liked about him, who's the principal who hired him, is that he knew how to work with the majority population, the whites, and he brought some sensitivity to that. Um, he was a very hard worker. He was very determined. He was a standout athlete. He was standout in terms of academics. He was very concerned about academics. Um, he was dedicated to his players. He helped them with homework. He helped them have clothes. He helped them make sure they were, you know, where they were supposed to be for curfew. Um, he was just an all-around uh, wonderful man in terms of his players and in terms of the program. It seems like he had a vision and he was driven. That's what I recognize. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. a person that is a driver. I'm, if I can see something, I'll drive toward it. And I felt that when I, the more I read about him or uh, try to build this character in the play, I see him as somebody uh, that is driven by his vision. He understands. I think he's um, conflicted sometimes mm -hmm. on how to speak up against racism. Mm -hmm. And maybe the beginning of his life colors that, that he's more tolerant and he believes in the good in people. Uh, we There's a line where he talks about bringing in the harvest and then the, the clan members going, putting on their, <laughs> their, their robes and leaving. And he felt no fear because this was his community. So, the same Think people. Of, right, the same people. So now he is in uh, an arena where he is the threat. Mm. He wasn't the threat then, but now he is the threat, and he sees it a, a, a different perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And there's some conflict within the school as to if they should even try to win games in the early 50s because they didn't want to, um, what's the word? Risk their yeah, risk their place within the community or anger, um, or even uh, reinforce stereotypes. Maybe yeah, it, it's more like not upsetting the boat. Okay, you know, like getting by and wanting uh, wanting not to seem radical, and part of it is is the uh, stereotypes, but everybody, every person in the community didn't buy into that. Some things are, are, are God-given and natural, um, but how you portray that is the key. Let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right. Let's get back to Dave Lindquist's interview with playwright Laura Town and director Deborah Asante about A Touch of Glory. Well, we haven't talked much about Oscar Robertson so far, so we need to do that. Oh, yeah. In addition to his on-court brilliance, I believe A Touch of Glory addresses his efforts to establish free agency for NBA players. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Why is that important? 
Oh, it's everything. <laughs> okay, for me, Dave, the fact that so many times people are are disrespected, pushed to their knees, and they don't know how to come up from it. They are so wounded. They do, you know, they it ruins them to go forward and do things that they may have been put on earth to do. In this case, that didn't happen to the big O. Yeah. You know, he was devastated as a young man who put a lot of honor and excitement behind being honored with a parade and the pies and all that he saw that ritual mean to the city. And he wanted to be the point of that. And when with high achievement, he did not achieve that. He couldn't understand it. And instead of laying down because that wasn't the, that was just the beginning of his devastation. He went on to college and was still discriminated against and disrespected in the MBA, the same thing. But instead of laying down and being wounded, he is a real warrior. Mm-hmm. He recognized that this was a battle. He recognized that he had weapons. He recognized that he could be a game changer, and he did. And why his name is not being shouted from the roofs for for this All-Star weekend, I don't get it because we're in Indiana, and Oscar Robertson has changed the game for everyone, not just basketball, but that Robertson rule. Yeah was a real that that changer it if we look back and say what if that didn't happen where would we be yeah and to me the the point of this this story is to point up that kind of achievement and the other uh players too i think we need to honor that we need kids need to grow up in this city and understand the significance of that. And that's why we are also creating a curriculum behind the story that will be offered to schools free of charge. So Deborah, when you mentioned that maybe Oscar Robertson's achievement was not met with the adulation that was expected, uh, this might go to something that's much discussed related to the 1955 championship. It's been considered a muted celebration of the victory because the mayor's office expressed fears of riots or violence downtown after the victory. Is that what you're speaking of? Yes, yeah. that's exactly what I'm I'm speaking of. Uh, that that a tradition had been set up that these boys had witnessed, and they believed they were worthy of that honor. And when it didn't happen in uh, not only in the young people's minds, but even in their leaders, Ray Crow and, and Russell Lane, uh, how do you how do you f- confront that right. in a way that doesn't say you are less or that you didn't deserve? And they in the play, we try to to recreate that moment where they're talking to the players, especially Oscar. And trying to manage that disappointment. However, what can really be said? I shared with with Laura when Malcolm X came out because as a black woman, 
the expectation that my people are violent and would tear up the city is is uh, baffling to me. And it wasn't just in the 50s. I remember when Malcolm X, uh, the movie came out and I went to see it in the theaters and there was such a high police presence. And I'm, I'm thinking, what's going on? Did something happen here? I'm like looking around. And then I read about it that across the nation, they put police wherever the movie was be. Now, I, when I, when I think about it, it, it confuses me because on what criteria has this been based? If, if you look at our history, there's never been a massacre that we perpetrated on anyone else. Our community has been massacred. So was the fear that the white community would come out and riot? But it, it, it's put on us. I, I don't understand it. And it's something that continues to happen. And as an artist, I'm always looking for how can I, as an artist, make the world better? This is one of the ways we're trying to do it, to make people talk, make people think, think deeper. Excellent. Yeah, I remember release of Malcolm X uh, as well. Um, Laura, is it is it accurate? Are you using uh, the Robertson rule as a a storytelling uh, part of, of the play? Yes, I would say that's accurate. I see this is I see Oscar and his teammates as superheroes. And don't tell me they don't they don't fly because they did. <laughs> they did. And this is their origin story. This is Oscar's origin story. And as Deborah said, the, the players all had productive lives as well. The other players did. But, you know, Oscar didn't just play the game. He changed the game. And that's not only true when he played in high school. I mean, I just mentioned that their turning was the highest points, still the highest points ever scored. And the previous turning was like 32 to 30 wow. points. <laughs> but Oscar, and Oscar didn't change the game for himself because by the time the Robertson role came around and he knew this, he was retired. Yeah. He didn't gain anything from it. He did this for his fellow players. He did this for the United States. He did this for laborers everywhere. He was the first black man to be the face of labor. He sued the NBA, which took guts. He wanted to be a sports commentator after he retired. He got a lot. He couldn't do that because he had sued the NBA and the NBA was angry with him. He never got a coaching job offer. He had to make his own way and start his own company and do something completely separate from basketball, in part because of this backlash. And when Oscar sued the NBA, there are 14, 14 teams. Now there are 30. Yep. It has been a benefit to the NBA as well. So I'm with Deborah in that I'm, I'm not sure why uh, we're not all shouting Oscar Robertson's name in terms of basketball in Indiana, because he is the most critical player to ever come from the state. He yes. is really our gift to the NBA. Um, not that maybe we shouldn't take that much credit for it, but he is the most critical <laughs> player from Indiana. Yeah. And I would like him to be honored while he's alive. 
and I would like people to reevaluate his contributions. And I know he's a Hall of Famer, and he had five seasons where he averaged a triple-double, and he won the gold medal in 1960. And, you know, all of those incredible—he won the championship with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1971, all of those fantastic statistics. But what he really did was— I don't know if I want to say set people free. Perhaps that's too strong of a no, way to say it. I don't it. think it's too strong. Yeah. Because when you play for the NBA, you didn't have a, you couldn't say you didn't want to play for this team anymore. Right. And people say Oscar wasn't the greatest because he didn't have many championships. Well, he couldn't have left that team. He wasn't allowed to leave that team yeah. until he changed the rules. And I just have to say that in public perception of labor and professional athletes, so much attention goes to Kurt Flood in Major League Baseball. But I think Oscar was fighting this before that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. That's so, my understanding. Yeah. Let's get Oscar his due <laughs> again and again. That's right. That's right. Laura, you talked a little bit about your research, but uh, could you expand on that a little more and how you researched uh, this project? I'm not sure what I can add to what I've said, but I've interviewed the surviving players. I've done a lot of research in original sources, reading original documents. I've talked to people who went to the games and got their impression. Uh, and I've you know read every book I could find and so forth. Well, I, I could add that uh, in, even in conversation with Laura, her mind works in a way that wants the whole story. You know, so if you're talking about something, the next time you talk about it, she will have gone and found out more. Nice. <laughs> so her mind is one that is creative and uh, loves the the facts. So it's it's a blessing. And we have tried to be very conscious that we are speaking for people, especially Oscar Robertson. And we've really worked not to put words in his mouth that he would not say. Got it. And that has taken a lot of work and a lot of yes, care. a lot of care because we've gone back and forth over different things uh, because the culture part of it. There, there are things, no matter how much she loves the history, there are things that she won't be sensitive to uh, culturally. Sure. Because that has not been her experience. So uh, we've had wonderful dialogues where we are really talking about what's the meaning of and how that, if I'm sitting in the audience as a, a Black person, how will I absorb this story? If I'm sitting in the audience as a white person, how will I absorb this story? And the partnership between us both carries weight in that way that we have those two perspectives can I ask about the format of the play? I saw a casting call that included dancers. Yes. <laughs> we it's they're like our Greek chorus. Okay. We have a a hip hop cheer squad that is like the voice of now and the historical perspective of it. And they are our cool and sexy. Gotcha. They do for us what the Laker girls did for the <laughs> Lakers. You know, they bring this like vibe, this little hip hop and rhythm vibe. And it's written in a quick fire way. Uh, so the rhythm is real important to it. So we have this Greek chorus that is is coming in and making comments saying, we're looking at this now. This is what we see. Then we have 
Oscar Robertson looking back over his life because it starts out at a Christmas Attics reunion. Okay. And a, a recorder from a, a reporter from the recorder right. <laughs> stops him and asks for an interview and, and asks, is he thinking that he will host? Because the word has went out that they want him to host or, or to be the grandmaster of the parade. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, what a great idea. And are you going to do it? And he's like, no, I'm not doing it. And he's like, what? She's like, what? What? And he, and she's asking the question. He says, wait, I'm going to tell you how it was. Got it. So you can see why I won't do what you're asking me. And so then he takes her back through his life. Now, so we have that narrative voice, but we also have this hip hop Got voice. It. So it, it it's very different mm-hmm. uh, and very creative. So are we talking about the Grand Marshal of the Indy 500 parade or a different yes. one? Okay. Yes. Yes. Which he ended up doing. He ended up doing for his teammates. Nice. But we know that it wasn't an easy yeah, do. Yeah. He, he wasn't like, yay. <laughs> oh, of course I want to do that. <laughs> and it. this is that story. Uh, I have to ask about the origin of the title, A Touch of Glory. I think that is a line I've always had in the play where he, older Oscar says, I want to touch glory. And I've had different titles for the play, but that just stood out. I'd like to ask something related to the mid-1950s in Indianapolis. Uh, when Gamebridge Fieldhouse installed new artwork in 2022, I interviewed artist India Cruz Griffin, who created work depicting the Attics Championship of 1955. It was interesting to hear her talk about journalists back then who published the home addresses of Attics players. She said it depended on the reporter's perspective whether that info was presented in a positive or negative context, either an implication of, oh, these living conditions are not great, or, hey, these are regular kids who are accomplishing great things. Do you have thoughts on the buzz that surrounded uh, the team back then? You, you said you call them superheroes. Yes. Uh, were, they, were they celebrities? And, they and were celebrities. Held up in, in town? They were celebrities, definitely held up by their community, but even uh, they could go to white areas of the town and get free haircuts. They could have lunch for free and so forth, dinner for free. But that was during basketball season. Those places were closed to them after basketball season. Mm. So while they played basketball, they were welcome. While they didn't play basketball, they were not welcome. Uh, In terms of their home addresses, uh, you probably know this, but most of the players actually lost their homes during this time. They lived in a place that uh, IUPUI wanted. And so they grabbed that land for eminent domain. And they they had a very limited time to move from their homes. And it was hard for them to find other housing. It was hard for them, for blacks to live north of 38th Street. There were, you know, housing commissions who would not allow that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were not given a lot of money for their homes. Uh, they had white people come in and tell them that they were living, you know, in derelict, horrible conditions, which I'm sure was not pleasant to hear from people. Um, and, you know, the percent, I think it's something like 85% of the basketball players lost their homes during this time. And I can't wow. imagine, they were still winning games, right. losing their home. Wow. Didn't have home, didn't have a gym, couldn't play home games. Uh, they were very poor. Um, Henry Robertson, who's Oscar's brother, 
talked about in 1951, they, uh, so they had coal to heat their home. They had to use, a, I guess, a coal-burning stove. They didn't know how they'd make it through the winter. His older brother, Bailey, who's very important to the Christmas Addicts program, won an shot an incredible shot against Muncie. It was called the shot heard around the world, and they won this game against Muncie in one of the you know, semifinals. Uh -huh. A supporter came and dumped a truckload of coal onto their front yard. And they all ran outside and grabbed that coal and put it inside the house so no one else would get it. And that's how they survived the winter. But they were wow. very cold, uh, very poor. Uh, they went to Christmas Attics for showers in the morning. Sometimes the only food they had was lunch at Christmas Attics or, you know, Betty and, at Betty and Ray Crow's house. They fed the players. Uh, but it was a time of extreme poverty. Yeah, I had not... Uh... Not aware of much of that. <laughs> right. And uh, it's called weathering. Yeah. You know, like that's the, the term now. Uh, how do we survive and, and achieve in spite of that? You, you are still being weathered. There, you, this has an effect on a person. Um, and yet these boys went on to win that season the next season, a perfect season, right? and then go on with their lives and still be change agents in the world. Uh, a lot of times, I don't think we consider that. Yeah. Both of you foreshadowed uh, what I'd like to talk about now. Uh, this was the first state championship for any Indianapolis school, something that didn't happen in the previous 40 plus years. Also, as we mentioned, this addicts team is recognized as the first time an all-black school won an open state tournament anywhere in the United States. Uh, is the upcoming NBA All-Star Weekend a new chance to bring light to this accomplishment? I want to bring Christmas addicts to the party. Yeah. I, I want to, our, in our press release, we have the line, all roads lead to Christmas addicts. Yeah. Uh, if you're in town for the All-Star Weekend and you have the opportunity to come and touch this history, to be in the space where these people made magic, their origin as they went forward, and you don't take advantage of it. It's a missed opportunity. <laughs> it's a missed opportunity. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we have those free previews for our community uh -huh. to come and, and, and see the show and get that story out there, but all, the All-Star Weekend, we want to celebrate. Yeah. If, if we're celebrating the NBA, we have to celebrate Oscar Robertson and Crispus Addicts and that those teams that played those championships because it was groundbreaking. And somebody needs to say it and keep saying it. We are thrilled to have the free preview shows. But even during All-Star Weekend, the tickets are $20 in advance and 30 at the door. And, uh, you know, All-Star activities aren't usually a cheap date, but this <laughs> is right. definitely a cheap date. Right. And we have to see a lot of people come out. May I ask more about the curriculum plans for A Touch of Glory? Sure. So I own a company called Williamstown Communications, and we have created curriculum now since 2005. When I started researching this story and working on the play, I really thought this is something that children need to know. Not only do children need to know the history in terms of social and emotional intelligence, but there's so many 
historic moments this play ties into, such as eminent domain. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, I also felt that drama clubs uh, around the United States, specifically African-American drama clubs, could use this play. There aren't a lot of African-American plays that are free or royalty-free to use, and so sometimes it's hard. And there, and this has a large cast. It's not a typical play. So okay. you could have 20 people in this play or even 30 people in this play. Right. So it's perfect for schools to use. Um, and because of the grant and because we've been so blessed, we are creating a curriculum for free, and we're going to work with schools to offer the play as well. And the curriculum will be used in middle schools and high schools. Fantastic. My kind yeah. of learning. And we're very grateful to uh, the Lilly Foundation uh, for recognizing uh, the potency of this project. All right. For ticket information for the six presentations of A Touch of Glory in February, visit atouchofgloryplay.com. And as we've mentioned, tickets for those first three are very reasonable. Yes. Free. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah and Laura, for your time today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. My thanks to Laura Town and Deborah Asante and to Dave Lindquist for handling this week's podcast. And you might want to check out Dave's front page story on the latest issue of IBJ about the significance of black culture in the NBA's All-Star Weekend. Also in this week's issue, Daniel Bradley explores the growing housing trend toward active adult communities for boomers and Gen Xers. And Peter Blanchard profiles Brad Chambers as he tries to leverage his experience in business and economic development into a term as Indiana's governor. You can find these stories in the print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Mm -hmm.